Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries project. For this episode, I spoke with Will Richardson. This is the second time Will has been on the show. We spoke a few years ago during the first iteration of this podcast. The topic of that conversation was Seymour Saracen. If you're in education and don't know who that is, I highly recommend you look into his writings. I started with The Skeptical Visionary, so I think that's a great place to begin your work, and you can go from there. You can also listen to my last conversation with Will. For this conversation, Will and I talked about his new book, Nine Big Questions, Schools Must Answer to Avoid Going Back to Normal, in which he poses nine essential questions he and his co-author, Homo Tovinger, believe educators must engage in to transform schooling. And despite the challenges of COVID, this situation presents a unique opportunity to institute some long-desired changes. I don't agree with Will on all points. However, I think we both agree that far too little time is spent asking and answering the big questions, such as what is learning. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you do, please leave a review on whichever podcast app you use. And don't forget to visit the Spanning Boundaries website to check out the newsletter. Here's my conversation with Will Richardson. Great. Well, um, I am excited to welcome Will Richardson to the Fishing for Problems podcast. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate you having me back. So can you, uh, before jumping into your most recent book, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I was a, uh, a public school, high school English teacher for 18 years, then a technology director at a large um, school here in rural New Jersey, where I live. And then about 15 years ago, um, started writing uh, some books about uh, Web 2.0 technologies in schools, weblogs and wikis and those types of things. And uh, it kind of set me off on a path of speaking and writing. And, and so for the last uh, decade or so, I've had the real privilege of traveling around the world. I've been to over 25 countries, um, worked with uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of uh, teachers and, and leaders, parents, kids. Um, it's been uh, an amazing journey and uh, have turned my work basically in the last uh, four or five years to really looking at school change and trying to help schools contextualize this moment, which was chaotic even before the last 12 months, but certainly in the last year or so has all that chaos has been amplified and um, now really asking as the name of our new um, uh, initiative is is titled uh, asking big questions about uh, you know where is education right now where should education be how do we need to rethink our work um, and and what does a, a post pandemic school look like um, you know I, I uh, the title of the book we just put out has a subtitle that says you know um, basically normal wasn't that great to begin with and so we don't really want to go back there but that means that we have to think a little bit more um, specifically about what we want school to be now. And so that's interesting work. It's hard work. It's challenging. Uh, the, the conversations are existential, which uh, makes for some uh, interesting, not only uh, intellectual um, stuff, but emotional um, stuff that goes along with that. And, uh, but it's, it's time, I think, for us to, to go and, and occupy that space. Yeah, no doubt. Past time. So the title of your book, uh, Nine Big Questions Schools Must Answer to Avoid Going Back to Normal, uh, and then that subtitle, Because Normal Wasn't That Great to Begin With. We're going to get into those nine big questions. But before that, I want to frame the conversation a little bit by jumping into your introduction. And I like the quote that you use at the beginning of the introduction. 
Uh, quote, your present circumstances don't determine where you can go. They merely determine where you start, uh, end quote. And that's by Nido Cubane. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of great quotes in, uh, in, in the book. I'm curious why you start with that and how you feel like that frames the work that you are hoping to do in the rest of the book. Well, I think we're we're trying to to you know stay in this moment. Um, obviously, um, the like I said, the last year has been exhausting, and it's been extremely difficult for all of us, whether you're in education or not. Um, and uh, the circumstances have changed um, dramatically in that time. But you know, it's not it's it doesn't mean that we can't reinvent. It doesn't mean that we can't think differently about um, about what we do next in schools and how we re-envision uh, what what schooling is and what education is too. If we really want to get big about it, right? So um, I think it's just a, a a way of of saying you know we can do this work now, even though we're exhausted, even though we're we're scared. Um, and even though there's lots of big challenges uh, that are coming at us, obviously, um, you know, this is this is where we're at. So let's move forward from this moment. But to do that, we really have to understand this moment. And I think that's what basically the, the thrust of the book is. Yep. And so thinking about context, uh, the context of 2020, the context of 2021, the unanticipated and challenging circumstances that we're all living through. There was a Twitter post this week by a professor at Teachers College uh, in, at Columbia, uh, Chris Emden, who wrote, quote, it is important for youth to know that they are living in remarkable times. Let them know that they are creating history every day. Tell them that they are the ones the future will read about, end quote. And I saw this after I read through your book and thought that it connected well. I also saw a recent LinkedIn post of yours where you wrote, quote, if we're not learning from this moment, that school needs to be dealing with real life as it happens in ways that both protect and prepare our children for what's to come, then we're missing what it's trying to tell us because the current curriculum we're delivering and testing isn't helping us solve those problems, end quote. So why do you feel like it's so important to focus on context and how important do you think it is for schools to actually talk to students, have those conversations about the situation that we're all facing? So it's a great question, and I'll start it. I'll start an answer by saying that, um, and, and this is something we reference as well, um, that you know what's happened in the last year or so has sped things up um, in in an incredible way. I mean, a lot of people are saying we lived a decade in a year. I think the greatest example after educators is you know a lot of the moves that we made toward technology and online school and and remote schooling and all of that. Uh, we probably would have gotten there in a few years, you know, if if uh, we just didn't have to get there within two months or within some cases two weeks. Um, and, and I think that that applies to a lot of different things in our lives, you know, how quickly uh, the whole idea of work and remote work and what the future of work looks like, I think, is totally changed um, because of, again, the ways in which we had to respond to this particular moment. So um, we have to understand that we are living in a very different world. It's a very different moment. And that the, the kind of amplification or the acceleration, I guess is the better word, of, of some of these trends isn't going to slow down just because the pandemic ends. I mean, um, I think a lot of these, these big boulders have started rolling down the hill. And so when you look at education, how do we how do we create a school experience for kids? And I think this goes back to Chris's quote too, you know, how do we, how do we create an experience for, for kids in school that is relevant 
that is just and you know that is is really um, more effective for them if we're not living in the current moment. And I think institutions suffer from this in general. Uh, I think institutions are very slow to kind of catch up to the way the world operates. I think, you know, again, if you want to look at politics in the United States, we did a lot of catching up in the last few years in terms of the impact of social media and all of the stuff that's happening right now in terms of us trying to figure out, you know, how do we live in this world where we're living in like this epistemic crisis right now that we haven't caught up to yet? We don't really understand why we're having such difficulty separating truth from fiction, you know, and all of those types of things, right? So there's an urgency for this right now because we've moved so fast in the last year or so, because these trends had already begun to kind of slowly push us in this direction even before the pandemic, but that now moving forward, it's not going to slow down. I mean, we like to talk about, I think like is the wrong word, we, we phrase or the phrase that we use to try to uh, capture this moment that's that we're in and that probably we're going to be in moving forward is is not a new normal but a no normal that um, you know we're going to constantly be buffeted by all sorts of stuff that is going to be disruptive and chaotic and existentially uh, challenging us. I, obviously, I think the big one is climate, right and. Uh, we we don't know exactly what the impacts are going to be moving forward, but we know they're going to be pretty severe, um, and we're going to have to have to really, you know, understand or 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 create mindsets that that kind of can um, adjust or roll with whatever comes our way. So anyway, long story short, the urgency right now is that we can't be bringing a 20th century mindset or an even early 21st century mindset to the conversations that we're having about education. We have to be bringing a 2021 mindset. And to do that, you have to understand the contexts of how the world has changed and where all of those challenges and opportunities are. And we're not saying that that's easy by any stretch, right? But we are saying those are the most important conversations that we have to have right now. Yep, not easy, but worthwhile and necessary. So switching gears a bit, uh, talking about technology. Uh, so you write, quote, that while many schools move to online delivery in short order, we were reminded that our collective technological literacy as educators is behind the cur curve, as evidenced by our general ability, inability to do more than replicate face-to-face -face teaching online, end quote. So I appreciate that you use the words collective in general, because, you know, I do think there are educators out there who are transforming pedagogy in an online environment. But it does seem to me, and I experienced this in my last job, that we just weren't prepared for this. Uh, I've joked with uh, my sibling Lev about what school closures might have been like 25 or 30 years ago and how our parents in schools might have navigated those waters without current technologies. But, you know, tech is significantly better today, you know, but it's, it's not exactly being used in ways, I think, that are what you might call transformative. We're still scratching the surface. It certainly hasn't fulfilled the visions of Seymour Papert, I think, you know, a visionary that we both um, look up to right. and the, the, the thought that he had in the 70s and 80s about what technology could do. So what do you see as the, the primary deficits of schools and teachers as it relates to tech use? And how can we begin to address some of those deficits? Um, so it, it kind of speaks to one of the questions that um, we bring up in this book and, and actually one of my favorite questions in this book. And that's the one that asks, where is the power? I really think that technology used um, in schools in, in just in general, certainly again, before even this moment that we're in, but certainly now, um, there hasn't been any 
uh, transfer or shifting of power around learning, um, even though that's one of the affordances of technology. I mean, you would agree, I think, and most adults would agree who are engaged at least in this conversation, that technologies, one of technology's main uh, affordances is around being able to learn in ways that, um, you know, learning without technology is, is very difficult to do, right? So um, one of the things that I thought has been very interesting about this moment in terms of schools and their struggle to, you know, uh, deliver curriculum uh, through Zoom sessions, room and Zoom, or, you know, blended, you know, a hybrid, whatever you want to call it, um, one of the things that's been interesting is that the schools that have had the most success in terms of student wellness and student, student in terms of student performance, all of that, have been schools that that came into this moment where kids were doing much more inquiry-based, project-based, self-determined, you know, um, more um, uh, creation, creating things and collaborating where it wasn't so much about having to figure out how do we how do we deliver these 14 units of calculus over the next six weeks, but it was more, um, okay, now we're just doing these problems and we're asking these questions and we're mediating that through technology because you have the power to continue to learn in the ways that make sense to you rather than try to acclimate to us delivering lessons through technology, if that makes sense, right? So. Um, I, I think that that what we've missed in the technology conversation, and I think what Papert and others were trying to say all along, is is that we really get agency when we have technology. Um, we we really develop an, an agency and power are kind of synonymous in this case. That um, you know, one of the ways that kids are going to succeed and thrive in the world that's coming at them is going to be determined by their ability to continually learn on their own, to not be waiting for someone to tell them the stuff that they're supposed to learn or how they're supposed to learn it or how they're going to be assessed on it, but to go out and seek problems and, and questions that are meaningful to them, but also have an impact on, you know, on their surroundings and on the greater, um, on the greater, you know, globe and, and world. So um, I, I think that, that, uh, Technology is an amazing, amazing tool that we can use to learn with um, and create with and connect with. And I think a lot of adults have kind of learned that actually in the last 12 months. But I don't think that's trickled down into the way we think about the interaction between students and teachers as mediated through the technologies that they're carrying in their hands. So what do you think it looks like to begin to address some of those deficits? Have you seen any uh, schools work with any schools that are over the last or have over the last, you know, 9, 10, 11 months uh, really transformed the way that they go about uh, providing instruction or at least changed even from the beginning, you know, in March to what they're doing right now? Things like Zoom instruction or project based learning or inquiry based learning. So I think that there have been some changes on the edges in some schools, but to be honest, Matt, I think that we were so, we have been so exhausted by just trying to solve the problem of how to stay open, whether that's virtually or, or otherwise, that it's been difficult to find the bandwidth and the headspace to say, well, you know what, what if we change the way that we no. do things? What if we really rethought pedagogy? You know, what if we really gave more opportunities for kids to pursue learning in their own terms, you know? that's a heady conversation to begin with. You, you layer that on top of just trying to get through the day um, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, coronavirus, 
um, cases or quarantines or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it's been really hard to do that. Um, that said, I think now that we are maybe kind of sort of seeing a light um, at the end of that, you know, long dark tunnel that we're in right now, that the vaccines are coming. And, and certainly this is not, uh, it, it, the rollout's not going to be equitable. And there are going to be schools and kids around the world who are are going to continue to be in this space for maybe years yet to come. But having said that, um, there does seem to be maybe like we're we're kind of on the upswing a little bit here. And I think now is the time that we have to begin to think, okay, so what is going to be different? Um, what are the things that we're going to change and why? Um, I think, again, you know, we point this out in the book, there, the pandemic and, and the, the um, social justice issues and the economic inequity issues and the information literacy issues, I mean, so much has surfaced in the last year in terms of stuff that's kind of broken. And um, we're not going to fix that stuff if we just go back and do it the way we did it in the past, you know. So um, basically, um, I think that that's, that's kind of the key right now. Um, we have to begin to try to find some time and space to talk about uh, what, what is the next iteration here that we're going to try to create um, with the understanding that we can't keep doing what we've been doing because a lot of what we've been doing got us to this place. Yep. And I am in the process of putting together chapter one of my dissertation and was thinking about changing topics uh, a couple months ago uh, to try to focus on how schools are thinking about change during this time. And my dissertation chair dissuaded me from approaching that because, as you alluded to, her sense was that people are just trying to get through the day and uh, and, yeah. and, and just survive as opposed to thinking about how to uh, how to transform what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, so there was a interesting blog post that I responded to that was kind of making that same argument it said, well, change isn't going to happen because we just don't have the bandwidth for it right now. Right. But I, I kind of pushed back a little bit and said, yeah, I I, I mean, I agree that this is incredibly exhausting and stressful in this moment. But I don't want us to use it as an excuse to say that we can't have big conversations. Look, we we weren't having big conversations before the pandemic. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's not the pandemic that stopped us from doing this. I think it's fear, to be honest with you. I think if we really allow ourselves to go into those very difficult places where we have to interrogate our practice and our systems, I think we're scared that what we'll, the answers we'll come up with are not going to be really great answers. I mean, you know, there's so much that we do in schools that just makes no sense when you think about it in the context of learning. It makes a lot of sense in the context of schooling, right? And and by the way, this is just another kind of push that I've I've had this entire time when people have been talking about, well, we're doing remote learning, hybrid learning, you know, mm -hmm. this learning. We're not doing that. We're doing remote schooling. And the two things are really different, right? And schools are set up for schooling. They're not set up for learning. And I don't get too much pushback from people on that. You know, I get when, when we start talking about the fact that, you know, siloing out subjects, that's that's not a good condition for learning. Siloing kids out by age, that's no one would do that in the real world. 
you know, uh, stressing kids out by these high stakes tests. I mean, you can go on and on and on and just list all these things that when you look at them at face value, you kind of go, yeah, that's not really a good thing to be doing for learning. And there's general agreement on that. But then you ask, okay, so what do you want to do about it? And that's when it gets really, really, people just like, oh, man. Because, again, it's not just an intellectual exercise at that point. It's an emotional exercise, right? We have, we have all sorts of narratives and stories that we tell ourselves about schools and about teachers, who we are as teachers and what our value is and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And all of those things have to be, have to be put on the table and you have to ask all right, well, what of that stuff do we really want to keep? And again, this goes to one of the questions in the book, right? What of, what of that stuff do we want to keep? And what of, what of that stuff do we just want to get rid of and just shed and leave behind? Um, those are scary conversations, pandemic or no. Yep. And I think that, you know, we need to think about a prolonged timeline for this. So it's not necessarily trying to make that change today. You know, we still need to get through this time. And I, I love this quote that you use. Right by, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this name also, Ar- Arundhati Roy. Um, Arundhati yeah, Roy, yeah. Um, the quote, mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic is a portal, a gateway between yeah. one world and the next. I love that because we're going through that door, the portal, whether we like yeah. it or not. And there's going to be something else on the other side of that door. And so maybe it's once we go through, then we can begin to have our conversations, which we uh, sort of get our bearings uh, and reassess what, you know, hopefully it's not, you know, more than, I don't know, a year and a half or two years, uh, maybe sometime in the fall, maybe it's sometime in 2022, but using that as an opportunity to begin to have the kinds of conversations that uh, that you're referring to. Yeah, and and so I, I love the, the last part of that quote though, you know, where she says, basically we can choose to walk through the portal dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us, or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And that quote has been uh, one that's been driving us in our work, because again, um, there are so many things about uh, what we used to do. You know, there are so many things about normal that that just are not healthy for us. They're not just, you know what I mean? There's irrelevance. Um, and um, you know, I, I think there's this is an opportunity for us to let go of a lot of that stuff. And by the way, we've already had to let go of a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Guess what? We haven't done like SAT testing or, or you know, IB testing or a lot of those standardized tests for the last year and maybe not even this year coming up. Um, we've had to reduce a lot of the curriculum just because we simply can't do all of it, you know, by having kids sit down in front of computers for eight hours and yeah. listen to Zoom bells and all that kind of stuff. So there's been a whole stuff that the pandemic has pushed us to say, yeah, we're going to choose not to do that right now. Why would we bring that stuff back? Why would we just go back and say, yeah, let's just pile all that stuff back on again? We got we got to get rid of the matched luggage is what we need to do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to extend the metaphor, exactly, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, you know, open it up and take out the uh, industrial strength hair dryer. Yeah, definitely. So uh, on to the on to the nine questions. So your yes. nine questions. Uh, the first one: What is sacred? The second one: What is learning? The third one: Where is the power? The fourth one: Why do we blank? So insert you know whatever thing <laughs> that we do in the K twelve space. Uh, number five: Who is unheard? Number six: Are we literate? Number seven, are we okay? Number eight, are we connected? And number nine, what's next? We discussed going through these one by one. You would pick one that you wanted to talk about, and then I would pick one that I wanted to talk about. Before doing that, 
Do you imagine this list as a linear progression? So you start with question one and move through to question nine, uh, or is it sort of, you know, pick whichever one you feel like is most relevant for you right now? Yeah, I think it's all of a piece, to be honest with you. I do think there there probably is one question here that um, is uh, more important maybe than all the rest. And based on our former conversation, Matt, I guess I'm pretty sure you can pick out which one I think it is. But I just think the question, what is learning, is at the foundation of everything that we do in schools. And unless we can answer that question with some coherence and then based um, a lot of our other decisions on on that definition, on that shared common language, that it becomes really difficult to change anything in the long term. That that has to be, I think, that and you know what is sacred. I think we put those two toward the top because we feel like those are such foundational questions for um, for anything that we do moving forward. Um, but the rest of them, I think, you know, they're just they're all important uh, in their own way. And they certainly all overlap in some ways, um, but they're also kind of separate in other ways. And so um, they're not meant to say, yeah, you got to do one and then do two and then do three, four, five. Mm -hmm. They're meant to just try to articulate the scope of the questions um, that, that we think are important to ask right now. And, you know, a couple of people gave us some feedback and they said, well, I'm surprised that um, you don't have stuff in there like what's important to learn. You know, like what what should be the curriculum, and and you know we we, we kind of considered those, but we we really wanted these to be more uh, to be kind of less concrete, almost to be more um, about uh, the culture, about the ethos of schools, rather than the the kind of day to day practical pieces of schools. Um, we felt like if, if we can get these questions on the table and come to some coherence around, you know, where we, we think we are with these questions, then that gives relevance then to the more practical systemic um, types of decisions that we need to make moving forward. No, I, I hear that. And, you know, before getting into the questions, I mean, that resonates a lot with me, just that idea of culture. I have worked with a lot of school districts over the years. And I mean, we are not right now defining what we mean by culture. Uh, you know, it's, we could have a conversation right. for hours just about that, but you know, right. I've had numerous conversations with uh, organizations that ask what other folks, uh, how other folks are using a specific product well. And I think it, it all comes down to, to culture. I mean, I can almost tell during a, uh, an initial conversation whether an implementation is going to be, you know, successful, whether it's going to struggle, just based on sort of asking questions and sort of nibbling around the edges of that idea of culture. And so I, I think those big questions are so critical because the stuff like curriculum, it's just, as you said, going to fall in line. It's going to take care of itself as long as those bigger questions are taken care of. Yeah. And, um, you know, what we're, what we're also trying to, to, to uh, maybe we don't say it explicitly, but we're, what we're trying to imply with these questions is that you have to be a part of a learning culture. Right. Um, I think there, that's another kind of interesting distinction between cultures of learning and cultures of teaching. Um, it's, that's a distinction that we make a lot. And that if we're really learners, these are the types of questions where we have to play um, and uh, not so much about the how. Uh, there's a, we, we referenced Peter Block a couple of times in this book um, who, who writes a lot about you know, community and culture, but he also wrote a book called The Answer to How is Yes. 
And the, what he was trying to say there is basically the how questions are all answerable within the room if you understand the, you know, kind of like the setting or if you understand um, the, the contexts for, for um, pursuing those questions, right? The why questions, the, you know, all, the, all that. So that's why we don't have any how questions in there by design. No. So uh, I also, you alluded to this a little bit, but your process for this, how did you come up with that list? Were you aiming for nine? Like, were there any that you left off that you felt kind of <laughs> bad about um, that you had wanted to include? Uh, um, yeah. We didn't, we didn't have a number in mind. Uh, we, we over, and, and these are, uh, we didn't sit down and say, okay, let's write the question. You know, these are, these are questions that have been coming up in our work and um, have been, um, we thought, very important again to have some understanding or some coherence around before the other change work becomes um, either even uh, doable, but uh, certainly becomes sustainable. Right? Um, that we were looking what are, what are the foundational questions that we have to ask here for the work that we do moving forward to sustain itself? And and uh, so yeah, these we, I think we started with seven actually, and then we added a couple more. Um, because we just kept thinking about it. I think at one point we may have even had a couple more than this, but decided at the end to to just take them out. But yeah. But where do you want to start? Uh, which one is, uh, you know, is at this? I like them all. I like them all. Right? So. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, and I kind of alluded to it before. Um, I, yeah, it's hard to, to and, I, and again, we've I've already kind of touched on many of these already. Um, but I think one of the ones that is um, becoming more and more acute and more and more important is the one about literacy. Are we literate? Um, I think there's a case to be made that we're illiterate right now in lots of different ways. I think that the ways in which uh, information and media and um, knowledge and all that stuff is shared in social spaces online today has just changed the calculus of literacy um, in in some huge ways. I think that's play it's playing out on a daily basis in this country at least. It played out uh, certainly during the last election, continues to be a problem. Um, we we cannot seem to agree on what uh, is true. Uh, we we claim that we can have alternative facts or that you know we can we can just kind of make up our own truths. Uh, that's no way. And, and in fact, I think that's an untenable situation for trying to um, sustain a democracy. Um, unless we can agree on some things, unless we can, you know, say, yeah, that's what's, that's what's true. Then, um, and, and again, you can see it, you can see it with, with uh, the pandemic, the vaccine rollout, the, the misinformation around it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and this is a really, I've, I've heard some people call this an epistemic crisis, and I, I think that's such an interesting phrase, but it is epistemology, right? It is our ability to uh, to kind of agree on what facts are. Um, I don't know really how we how we deal with this. I think it's been a problem that we've had for a long, long time, but I think obviously the internet and social media has exacerbated it in ways that are now... Um, um, making uh, making the world a much different place. Um, so how do we how do we help our kids understand that? How do we ourselves become to understand that so that we can model some different literacy or or some different sense of literacy for our for our children? 
um, it's one that that we're going to have to confront. And I think we're going to have to confront it very, very quickly, to be honest with you, because I think it's a threat to a lot of the way we think about um, our world and, and about our countries and about just information in general. Yeah, so this is actually where I would have started uh, because this is a topic I think is so, so critical right now. A, a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Paula McAvoy out of NC State who wrote a book with um, Dr. Diana Hess called The Political Classroom, all about how to make schools political institutions and how to have uh, you know, controversial conversations in high school social studies classrooms. I mean, I think they can occur uh, in all classrooms. But um, I'm, I'm curious how you feel like the concept of literacy has evolved. And it's interesting because we can go back 50 years, but it seems like maybe the biggest changes have occurred just in the last 10 to 15 years with the role of social media in creating what you have referred to as an epistemic crisis. Um, so there's that question, how the concept of literacy has evolved, but also this is a topic that I think schools in general are hesitant to take up. And so how do you feel like how do you feel like schools can go about doing this in a way that, I guess, benefits students, benefits parents, benefits teachers, because it is so critical. But, you know, you, you, you ask people, are schools political institutions? A lot of them will say they're not and they shouldn't talk about politics within the four walls of the classroom. And yet one of the things we're seeing is this idea of literacy, which, you know, traditionally reading literacy, math literacy, you know, those are things we can agree upon. But I would say that this idea of digital literacy today is almost more important than reading literacy or math literacy. Yeah. And I guess I would say it's not just political literacy, right? In fact, I'm not sure political literacy is how we should even talk about it. I think it's it's just literacy in the context of um, why am I seeing the things that I'm seeing online? Um, why, and, and this goes to the whole idea of algorithms, right? Algorithmic literacy almost, right? So there's another uh, author that I quote a lot and that I read a lot, Yuval Noah Harari, who um, in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which I would recommend as like the number one book if you want to understand the contexts of, of kind of what's happening right now and what could happen in the future. In his education chapter, which is, um, you might want to have an adult beverage nearby when you read it, but um, in, his, in, in that chapter, he says something along the lines of that the one thing we need to help kids do is to understand their operating systems better. So meaning that they need to understand themselves. They need to be able to have agency and they need to know who they are. That's like the most important thing, because if they don't have a sense of who they are, then the algorithms will basically tell them who they are. And that's when we get in trouble. And that's what's been happening a lot, I think. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, whether it's political literacy, whether it's media literacy, um, information literacy, I think right now uh, we don't have any idea how we're being manipulated um, by algorithms and by, by you know, by Facebook, uh, by Twitter, by those social media um, outlets. Um, I, I think you can make a case that Facebook is on the verge of, of destroying the world. I mean, I'm not and I'm not kidding about that. I, I think that they have um, lent themselves to all sorts of really, really bad 
um, misinformation, you know, um, illiteracy. They, they, they created a bunch of illiteracy based on the algorithms that they use to push information in front of people and to allow anybody to create anything and say anything. And look, I'm not saying, suggesting that this is, this is easy to fix, right? Yeah. It's hugely complex um, in terms of how do, you, how do you moderate? How do you um, just uh, um, try to you know, make decisions about what can and cannot be published in these spaces. But there's no question it's having a hugely detrimental impact on our lives right now. So um, I, I just don't think educators in general know much, if anything, about how to counsel kids on, on their own operating systems in terms of, um, you know, uh, making sure they trust themselves and they trust their own ears and eyes and that they look for their own information. They are able to edit the world, they are able to confirm, you know, what it is that they're reading, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and it is a huge, huge problem, I think, moving forward. There's no question. Well, I think we have a title for the podcast, Facebook is on the verge of destroying the world. <laughs> Go for uh, it. it. You know, it's so interesting because I was at uh, Boston University. I started in 2003. I, I just spent a year there, but I think that was the first year that Facebook launched and it was uh, used only in the Boston area for the campuses there. And uh, it was just a way for us to communicate with our friends to post, you know, pictures that hopefully have been taken off of the Internet at this point. Um, And just to think about its its evolution uh, to what it has become today um, and the choices that have been made along the way. I mean, it's an interesting conversation to have. With kids that you know where things were at a and where they are today at you know m or i, don't know, I mean yeah. might be, but um yeah well my, my just so you know my, my kid plays basketball for colgate and we're playing bu this weekend so you know, sorry about the upcoming losses for your alma mater um but uh <laughs> but no i you know i agree and and you know five billion people have yeah. facebook accounts yeah. <laughs> i mean just let that sit for a second right Five billion people in this world have Facebook accounts and the the enormity of that and the potential of, you know, just problems with that. If we're not thinking, um, you know, very clearly about what those interactions look like and the impact that those interactions have. I mean, it's it's a very scary um, it's a very scary moment for a lot of that stuff. The other thing that I wanted to point out before moving on to the next question is this idea of digital citizenship, which I think is itself a misnomer. It's just citizenship. I've said that multiple times on this podcast. Um, but in my last role, when we would talk to school districts around digital citizenship, a lot of the times it just wasn't something that they had the time for. And I think that it has become real over the last you know, year. And I mean, just in the last month, how important it is to begin to have conversations about you know what we're what we're seeing on the internet. Um, how to interact with that information? I liked in the um, in your book you talk about uh, training crap detectors, and I think it's it's so important um, to begin to have those conversations. And I think it's it's challenging because a lot of adults, like I don't know that I would know exactly how to have that conversation with a class of high school kids or even younger. Um, and so teachers need training. They need experience interacting with those platforms too. Um, but thinking about like bigger questions, there needs to be, I think, a clear purpose around why schools should be having those conversations. And I think that can, you know, filter into uh, what those conversations actually look like in practice. 
Yeah. And, and so, I mean, just briefly, um, on when I'm on Twitter and feeling pretty snarky, um, I'll post stuff with the hashtag new curriculum, right? Um, and basically, uh, they are usually links to articles about things that are happening in the real world today that actually impact children, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, you're right. I, I think a lot of adults, I think a lot of educators, A, they, they're not up to speed on a lot of these types of literacies that we're talking about. And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here. I mean, this has been, you know, again, uh, uh, it's been an interesting time to be a teacher with all the changes happened in the last 20 years because of the internet. I mean, it's changed so much, right? But um, but we spend, again, we spend a lot of time in schools on stuff that at the end of the day doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, this really matters. This really, really matters. And, and I think that's, again, we need to, we need to sit down and we need to just, just kind of put everything on the, the table and we need to just ask ourselves, does this really matter that we're doing this, you know, to kids today? Because, you know, you know, as well as I do. Most kids, because we did it, most kids, they'll forget most of what was on the test within a week after the test because they don't need it any longer. And um, very little of what kids, quote unquote, learn in school is really applicable and, and really has relevance to their lives today. So, you know, we're, we're still in this just in case mode. Mm. Um, where we need to be in this just in time mode. Those aren't, you know, I didn't, that's not original for me. I mean, a lot of people have said that, but look, this algorithm thing, this is just in time learning. We need to learn this now. We can't wait till it comes up in the curriculum or still somebody gets smart enough to put it on a test somewhere. Um, you know, this is, and there's a whole bunch of stuff like that, that we have to learn now. I mean, yeah, I get the whole social race, racial justice issues that have arisen in this country and around the world are really difficult to have conversations about. But what are you going to do? Cross your fingers and hope the kids can figure it out on their own? I mean, that's malpractice as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, we have to find ways. We have to find ways of having these types of conversations. And look, I get it. Um, you know, just one other side note on an article that I read yesterday, in fact, of a very prestigious school in New York City, independent school in New York City, whose parents are pushing back because, you know, there's too many conversations about equity. <laughs> there's too many conversations about all this social justice stuff. Where's calculus? You know, where's our emphasis on, you know, all this other stuff? So I'm not suggesting this is at all easy, but I, I just don't know how we send kids out into the world, literally crossing our fingers when it comes to understanding technology, understanding information, um, understanding what climate change is, is, you know, about to bring us, you know, um, all, understanding the history and of, of race and social, you know, injustice in this country and every, I, you know, it's just, it's malpractice. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up uh, the calculus example, because it's one that I think about a lot and I want to get on to another question. Just a, I, I took calculus as a senior in high school. I passed the calculus AP. If somebody put a calculus textbook in front of me, it might as well be in Russian. And so I had, I had an amazing calculus teacher. I loved that class. But I do wonder how useful it was. Uh, you know, there, there, I do think there's something to the, to the skill development part of it. Maybe there's not. I'm conflicted on this. But it does just make me wonder why I spent so much time in that class because I didn't go on using any of that stuff. Um, yeah. And so should, should I really make people mad at me by this next, you want me to just make everybody mad at me? Oh. Now? I don't know why we teach foreign language in school. 
I mean, everybody knows pretty much that the only way you learn a foreign language is to be immersed in a community that speaks that language. You know, the idea that you can learn French or Spanish in four years um, and then, you know, remember it and use it. Uh, the, I, I couldn't even guess at the percentage of kids who actually go on to speak somewhat fluently coming out of high school after spending four or five, six years now in middle school, too. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Guido Sarducci YouTube video, The Five Minute University. I don't know if you've ever no, seen no, that no, skit. No. He used to be on Saturday Night Live a long time ago. You're not as old as I am, but he does this skit called The Five Minute University. And he basically just says, This is, I'm going to teach you everything that you'll remember five years after you graduate from college. And his, his uh, you know, his foreign language unit is basically, Como style, muy bien. That's it. <laughs> you know? and so you get your Spanish credit for yeah. that. No, look, I, I, I'm not throwing, I, I don't want to throw foreign language teachers under the bus, but let's be honest about it. Let's be honest about it. They do. Do you get some linguistics? Do you get some, you know, gr grammar? Do you get some, is there some good that comes out of that? Sure. There's some good that comes out of that. But let's count up how many hours we spend in four years of taking a foreign language and then end up not being able to speak that foreign language and ask ourselves, what maybe could we have used that time to do differently? Um, what maybe could we have allowed kids to pursue um, that they would actually learn and use in their real lives? Um, you talk to kids and you ask them, what do you really want to know about? They'll tell you, like, I want to know about finance. I want to know how to buy a house. I want to know about, you know, getting in on the stock market or, or about other things that are going on in their lives that they see as important to being able to function in the world today that are just not in the curriculum anywhere. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, that make, that'll make people mad. And I apologize, but I, I just think it's representative of a lot of things we do in school because we've always done them and because we're not asking the question, okay, well, what's the value of this long-term for the child's ability to navigate the world? Uh, okay. So let's go on to another question. Um, you picked the first one. Are we, uh, right. the, um, are we literate? The second question that I thought was interesting, are we okay? So we've moved beyond school as a place to deliver content. How can education uplift the physical, social, emotional, cognitive, and spiritual well-being of children and adults? That comes from your book. This makes me think about the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Besser van der Kolk. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book, um, but it's about the ways that our bodies um, physiologically respond to trauma. There's a researcher um, out of Turo University in New York, uh, Elena lambert Chapel is her name, and she does work around reflective practice and how metaphor can be used as a mediational means for reflection. So to put it in layman's terms, like the use of a metaphor is just a tool to understand the environments we operate in and some subsequently act to make sense of those environments. When I read The Body Keeps the Score, it made me think about schools as systems that have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, systems that have suffered some severe trauma and are now struggling because of it. Of course, you know, schools like systems are made up of component parts, in this case, teachers, students, parents. And this question, are we okay? You know, I think has the ability for us to critically examine the health of the system and all of its constituent parts to diagnose, you know, its PTSD in order to catalyze a change of movement to heal past wrongs. So I'm curious what you think about all of that. Well, I think it's an interesting way to phrase it that, you know, schools are experiencing uh, PTSD, um, not just the people in schools. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, again, this moment with the pandemic, um, I think what we've learned is that kids aren't gonna learn anything unless they're emotionally um, 
you know, spiritually and 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 just well, you know, unless they're they're um, they have a certain level of wellness, mentally well. So, um, you know, no learning happens if you're not feeling uh, somewhat safe and centered and and um, connected to the people in the world around you. Um, but you're right. It's not just about the individuals. It's about the systems. And a lot of the systems are unhealthy. Um, a lot of the uh, environments that we create are unhealthy. And so it's not just the idea that, you know, you read all these articles and research studies that say that kids are more stressed out today than they've been you know, at any time in the past, that suicide rates are going up and that um, they're anxious and uh, really worried about not just uh, the present, but the future as well. Um, and I think a lot of that is is because, again, going back to the example I used before, we choose not to spend the time that we need to spend on those issues in favor of adding another requirement to the curriculum or in, um, you know, piling on some more homework here or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, there's a great book by uh, uh, an author, David Gleason, who's turned out to be a, a good friend of mine um, ca called At What Cost? And um, it was interesting. What he did was he said he was a school psychologist and he had all these kids who were presenting with, anx with anxiety and depression and, and suicidal thoughts and things like that. And he was he was really concerned by the levels of that that was happening. So he went to the schools and most of them were in you know pretty high flying independent schools, public schools, international schools. And he said, um, why do you think that uh, your kids are are presenting with all these you know concerns? And they they were very honest about it. They said, well, you know, we, we sleep deprive them. We make them get up at six o'clock in the morning when their brains don't really turn on until nine. And we know that we, we give them too much homework. We make it all about college. Um, you know, we make it all about test scores, et cetera, et cetera. They were really honest about it. And then he just turned to them and he just said, OK, so what would happen if you didn't do that? What would happen if you just stopped doing that? And the really surprising response, although not so surprising when you think about it, was, well, you know, if we didn't make it all about college, if we didn't give them all that homework, then our reputations would suffer. Then, you know, we wouldn't be able to, um, we wouldn't be able to charge as much. We might lose our jobs, actually, you know. So, you know, I mean, we know that, a lot, again, a lot of the things that we do in schools, and not just schools, but a lot of systems, right? But in school systems, isn't healthy for kids. It's not. But we are kind of loath to change those things because they have a direct impact on our standing, on, on how people's perception of what school is and what it should be. Um, you know, the idea that people will say, well, they're not a very rigorous school because they cater to kids' emotional and social well-being, <laughs> you know, that's like hard for us to hear, even though we know that that's best for kids. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and when you see, when you see suicide rates in places like, you know, Palo Alto, where kids are going to the sure. best public schools in the country and they, you know, are on the fast track to Harvard and Yale and Stanford, I think a lot of those parents would much rather see their kids be healthy than not live past the age of 18. I mean, I know it's sort of macabre to say that, but it's real. Yeah, it's sad. So um, I'm going to actually do this last one because I do want to talk a little bit about uh, your question, what is learning, and see if we might have a point of disagreement here. 
Um, we exchanged a couple emails about this, uh, this idea of framing students as learners and teachers as learners as well. And this is something that we used to do in uh, my last role when I would when I would do workshops with school and district leaders. We would ask them to list what they hope to see in a classroom of students and teachers. Next, we asked them to do the same activity, but instead of students and teachers, students became learners, teachers became professional learners. And that shift interestingly changed their responses. But since that time, I've been introduced to the work of Gert Bista, who challenges what he sees as the learnification of education. And Gert absolutely believes that learning should be a core component of schools. However, he sees the shift in framing from students to learners as a tool to sort of continue this trend of individualization of education, of movement away from sort of a collective experience or a collective purpose, the development of a democratic electorate. You're big on that concept of, you know, student as learner. So how would you respond to, to that critique? Well, I think, you know, the ideally school and education is a public good, right? So um, I'm referring here to a lot of the work that um, David Labory has done out of Stanford, where he he kind of looks at the at what shifted in that. I mean, we, we, we do want school to be a public good. We want kids to become democratic citizens, to be productive in our societies, to contribute. Um, that is a, the high aspiration that we have. The reality of what's happened, though, is that school increasingly has become a private good, where um, parents choose schools based on their perceived ability to either maintain or increase the level of prestige, to go to better universities, to get more, you know, um, degrees or or whatever. Um, and and that really that in many ways schools have catered to that shift. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always interested when I walk into school hallways, the stories that the hallways tell, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and the awards that, you know, they're giving out and the things that they highlight. And, and most of them are usually around kids, personal accomplishments and, um, you know, uh, test scores and AP scores and all that type of stuff. I think it's interesting, you know, the phrase that you use, the learnification of education, right? Um, I think this whole idea of an education is kind of interesting right now. And, and you have to remember, I mean, uh, this is, again, something that um, we have defined as we, we have some definition. It depends on where you're at and you know, who you're talking to, obviously. But we have people have some idea of what this thing that, uh, that an education, what it is, how, how you get it. You know, it's something that you go get somewhere, go to school and get an education, right? whatever that mm -hmm. means. Um, I just I, I don't know that that's um, the way to think about it, you know, and this is really a radical thought. Right. But what if what if an education and this Stephen Downs is someone who I read a lot and a Canadian educator who uh, who speaks very intelligently about these things. But what if an education is something that you create for yourself, that it's not something you go get somewhere. Right. How would how would you how would you create an education for yourself? And you could do that, by the way. You're increasingly, I fa in, in fact, I think moving forward, it's going to be easier and easier and easier and easier to get credentialed for the work that you do on your own, for you know the the things that you create, for the the code that you write, not only um, you know for uh, in a technology in a technology sense, but also for problem solving. So. What if what do you need in order to create your own? Well, you need to be a learner. It has to be about learning. Um, 
you know, and I'm, I'm reminded again of, of one final quote from Carol Black, who's um, an essayist whose essay, A Thousand Rivers, is another one of those, you know, that, that propels me, where she talks about this idea that, you know, learning is an extremely natural act. It's something that all of us do. We don't need to be taught how to learn. We learn right out of the box. You know, I mean, it's, it's like we're learning almost until the moment we die. And yet we take schools, which are very unnatural things, and we try to fit this Latin, this natural act into this very unnatural space. And she makes the connection. She says something like, you know, trying to figure out how kids learn best in school is like trying to figure out how whales learn best at SeaWorld. You know, um, it, it's like it, it, it's it, it's it's totally kind of unrelated. So. I guess what I'm going back at what the long kind of uh, response, winding response to get back to the idea that learning is a natural thing that we do. And to go back and quote Saracen, you know, productive learning is learning that engenders wanting to learn more. That's when we learn, when we want to continue to learn. And the unfortunate fact is that in education, we set things up in lots of ways where kids just don't want to learn more about whatever it is that they're talking about in school. So I think that that's a really important distinction to make. And I just think that um, it's, it's one that uh, uh, learning has to be at the center of the work. I mean, it has to be where we start and we have to have some coherence around what we mean by that word. Well, Richardson, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Stay safe. You too.